and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And we are continuing, I guess this is going to be a part three. I might tie them together, but I probably not will not because I don't like editing. So we'll probably just do a part three um, of stuff I don't believe and some things I still do. And rather, at this point, my blog post, because it really was out of order, I started off just saying in no particular order, here's some things I don't believe, some things I do. Towards the end, it got a little bit choppy. So I'll start this off by reading the Apostles' Creed. This is stuff that I believe, and it comes up at a few points in this post. Um, But if I just read this, it might draw it together a little bit more. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So I believe that there is a God. I believe that he is the creator, the almighty God. Um, He's the one that made heaven and earth. I believe that he's a judge. Uh, I'm not reading right now. This is me explaining what I believe. Um, And if you want to hear more about that, I've got some podcasts on. uh, A good one to start would be um, What If God Were an Alien? I've got a podcast on that thought experiment about thinking of God as an alien. Um, What it would be like to think of a super intelligent being uh, creating everything and being somewhat separate from us but interacting with us throughout human history that's that's how i think of god except that i think that he is also morally perfect which aliens as we typically imagine them are not any better than we are morally speaking whereas i believe that god is the center of morality he's the center of all goodness um have i talked about that I believe that he's the center of all goodness in a similar way to how Plato thought, uh, conceived of the good as the form of the good. So if you listen to the podcast on Plato, uh, I explain that a bit more. Um, But if you just want to, a quick and ready explanation, when you and I are saying, that's not fair, or you shouldn't do that, or you should do that, or you should believe this, all of our shoulds and shouldn'ts, it you can't say should and should not unless there's a right and a wrong. And a right and a wrong um, assumes that there's somebody who believes there's a right and a wrong. And clearly, you and I are having this conversation. But we're not saying only, I believe this is right, or I believe this is wrong. Now, we might say that. But usually when we're saying it, we're, we're meaning something like, this is right and wrong in a bigger sense. Um, this would be right and wrong even if nobody in the world believed it, even if I didn't believe it, I've discovered that this is right, or I've discovered that this is wrong. This is how we feel when we come to really ethical, really strongly ethical decisions, such as abortion, such as um, the Holocaust, such as, uh, I mean, now with the pandemic, such as social isolating. And some people are like, do-do-do, I don't care, this is all a myth. And some people are like, you're going to kill people. This is a big deal. And I'm like, well, that's your opinion, right? <laughs> that's my daily life on Twitter right now. It's like trying to, and then I just need to like let people do what they're going to do. But it really bothers me because I value human life. Um, and, to, and when you get into these discussions, it's not just that I have this opinion. It's like there is right and wrong and what you're doing is wrong. So you need to stop it. And so 
we have this idea within ourselves that there is an opinion out there that is absolute. Uh, and that is the opinion of God. And God is just. And the opinion of God is that there is right and there is wrong. And this can actually be used to create one of the strongest arguments for God, which is called the moral argument. So you can go back and listen to my podcast. I really have a lot of great podcasts. You should, you should spend more time listening to this channel. <laughs> I would if I were you. Um, anyways, listen to the podcast on the moral argument. Um, and it will explain more about how God is the center of morality and how our, our, the very consciences within us, even the consciences of atheists, atheists that will say things like, God couldn't possibly exist because look at all the unethical things in the world, look at all the unethical things in the Bible, look at all the unethical things in the church. You can turn around on them, and many Christian apologists do, and say, what do you mean by unethical? Don't, don't you realize that by saying unethical, you are evoking um, a moral being? And it's very hard to speak about absolute ethics in the absence of God. People try, but it's very difficult to do. All right, so that's the first point. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. So I do believe uh, in the Trinity. I've got uh, at least one podcast on the Trinity. Um, I've got one, uh, if Jesus called himself the Son of Man, why do we call him the Son of God? Explaining uh, Jesus' own self-identity as God. And then I've got one, I think it's something like explaining the Trinity with an egg that you can go back and listen to. Um, and I'll probably do another one on the Trinity soon because I had a whole Bible study in French on the Trinity. So I need to translate that into English and it'd be an interesting podcast. Um, I believe that Jesus is God, but is also um, a distinct person. So the simplest way that I explain the Trinity is by a Siamese twin. And people haven't typically explained it this way, but I think it makes the most sense because the Christian idea is that he is three persons in one being. So a person is somebody, is, is a being, something that exists, that has self-consciousness and um, personal volition. They can make decisions on their own. And they are a center of self-consciousness. I just said that. So, okay, they're a center of self-consciousness and they can make free will decisions. So I'm a person. I have my own experience of the world, which is unique to me. Nobody else experiences the world quite like I do. And I can make decisions. I have limbs. I have a brain. I can send words out of my mouth. I'm a person. Computer is not a person yet. Maybe it will be soon. Um, animals, um, well, anyways, that, that's getting a little bit far afield. What to do with animals is a, is a big question because we're learning more about them every day. Um, but within the Godhead, there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we believe that each one of them is their own person. They are a center of self-consciousness and they have free will. Now, with their free will, they work together in perfect harmony. And the free will of the Son is always completely submitted to the free will of the Father. So that there is, in a sense, there's no difference. But there, there's a very important difference. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus saying, Not my will, but thy will be done. So Jesus is always going to do what the Father says he should do. But it's because the Son submits 
And that's important because Jesus becomes the model for us. We submit our free will to the Father. And the Father, remember, is absolute goodness. It is what we should do. It is, uh, it is the center of right and wrong. So if you have an image of an angry father or a mean God, just take that out of your mind and replace it with love and justice. If you have any idea of, like, it, it's hard to put a person in that place, but if you can think of the chapter on love, love is patient, love is kind, Love is not envious. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Um, love bears all things. Love endures all things. Uh, love hopes all things. And then we learn that God is love. So God is all these things. God is kind. God is patient. God hopes in us. God believes in us. God um, endures. God puts up with us. And he is just. He is good. So when we submit our will to God, it's laying down what I want to do in the moment and doing what I should do in the absolute sense. What is the right thing to do? And you know oftentimes what the right thing is to do. And sometimes it does feel like you're in the Garden of Gethsemane and weeping or sweating drops of blood and thinking, but I really want to do this. Yeah, but is it the right thing to do? You know what the right thing is to do. So the son submits his will to the father, just as we ought to submit our will to the father. And I do believe in a real historical sense that Jesus was God. Uh, again, um, I, I, I like the metaphor of an alien. I, I like the metaphor that you know a super powerful alien created this whole universe from Big Bang on, and he has been interjecting his little bits of, of creativity along the way, making Jupiter just a little bit larger than the rest of the planets to protect us from asteroids, making Earth just that right distance into the sun to make it, make it warm enough, and making sure we had a metal core, and uh, perhaps injecting biological matter along at certain points, uh, guiding evolution. Oh, this is going the wrong direction. Let's send an asteroid and wipe out the dinosaurs. And then, you know, and then as the human race takes off, whether or not he create, it does seem that he specifically created the human race. Then, you know, coming in now and then and guiding them and telling them things at crucial times and and guiding the, the course of human history so that it wouldn't turn towards the darkness, but it would turn towards, you know, better and better understanding of what it meant to be human and what it meant to be um, ethical creatures so that then he could explain to them the gospel so that they could have a relationship with him. And the coup de grace, the, the final climax of this, was when he sent the second member of the Trinity, Jesus himself, to come and be born of a woman so he would have a, a fleshly body. He would live like us. He would experience life like us in time and space because it does seem like God experiences, he lives outside of time in some way. And that's a big mystery. But Jesus experienced time like us, with us. And, um, and he lived and he died and his death pays for our sins. 
And I wonder if I have a podcast on that, on the atonement. I don't think that I do. Uh, that's a big topic, but basically what it means is that um, there needs to be a price paid for sin, and Jesus paid that price. Uh, so much more that could be said about the atonement, but we'll just leave it at that because this is meant to be an overview. And most of you understand and believe the atonement. And those that don't will have a podcast soon, hopefully. Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to reread. I'm going to go back to reading the Apostles' Creed. And born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. <clears throat> he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. So I mentioned that in the previous podcast that I believe Jesus will come at the end of time. Um, I don't think that we can know a lot about that time and what the specifics are. A lot of people are very sure that we can know kind of when and all the details and and uh, they are looking at world history and, and current politics and trying to figure out the day and the time and I think that's a waste of time, personally. Um, Jesus is coming back at some point, and that's all I need to know. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Um, I believe that when you are saved, the third member of the Trinity comes and makes his residence with you. And the third member of the Trinity also has... Um, it, he's an independent person. He has his, his own experience and... Um, and he comes literally to live inside of every single Christian. This is a little bit like what people would think of for demon possession, only in a good way. Um, because again, God is morally perfect. He's good. This isn't an evil presence. It's a good presence. And what I mean by the whole, the primary thing that most Christians will tell you because a lot of Christians will tell you that they feel filled by the Holy Spirit, is that we feel peace. We feel just a sense of peace and a sense of love. Um, and it's kind of an ongoing, low-grade experience that there's just there's something there. And many of us will tell you that the times that we come the, become the most conscious of the Holy Spirit is times when we feel His absence, and that's especially when we sin, or we walk away from him, or we don't spend enough time reading scriptures to keep that aspect of our lives alive. And that's when we just feel this hole and this void and this terrible sense of, of loneliness. And it's at that point, as David prayed in Psalm 51, um, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Uh, do not, you know, please come back. Please fill me again. This is the experience that I have lived uh, for many years and that um, many Christians experience, that there is something called the Holy Spirit that lives in us, that's part of us, um, that's become very, very precious to us. I don't believe, while we're on the topic, about I don't believe in, in a specific second filling of the Holy Spirit. Some Pentecostals believe that you can get saved and then later on you get baptized in the Holy Spirit. But I do believe that um, anybody at any time, any Christian, can ask for more of the Holy Spirit and receive it. 
And oftentimes, um, and there's always more, there's always more you can have. And along with that can come um, more power, like the, the New Testament speaks about uh, spiritual gifts, healing, speaking in tongues, uh, prophetic words, um, even just an ability to do what you're doing, but do it more powerfully. There's an anointing for that. There's always more of the Holy Spirit that we can have, and it's always going to make our life better. And Jesus said, um, which of you, if your son asks for a loaf of bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a cup of water, will give him a snake? If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so we can always ask for more of the Holy Spirit. And if the answer seems to be no, that you're asking, but you're not getting more of the Holy Spirit, you're not getting more filled, you don't have more joy in your worship, you don't have more peace as you sleep, you don't have more of a sense of God when you pray, it's possible that God, well, it's possible that God is testing you. God does do that sometimes. Or it's possible, and and the purpose of this is for you to persevere in your prayers and keep asking and keep asking. And the reward will be equal to the passion of your prayers. That's what I mean by testing. And it'll be worth it um, because God is good and he, he only tests in ways that are good for us. So it could be that, or else it could be that there's sin in your life and you're trying to love two masters and that just doesn't work. Um, but I believe, getting back to Pentecostalism, I believe that... Um, once we're saved, we get the Holy Spirit. Anytime that we ask, we can have more of the Holy Spirit. Um, and the stories in the New Testament about people receiving an overpouring of the Holy Spirit where there was all this miraculous stuff that happened and all this speaking in tongues and everything like that. It was just, any of us can have that anytime. We just need to ask for it. And it was a specific thing that happened at a specific time where God was holding back until the leaders of the church would go out and embrace and bless various people and say, yes, you can have it. And it was a specific thing that happened to have, that had to happen at that time so that um, there would be unity in the church. Uh, that's my belief on speaking in tongues. Uh, people are starting to wake up. might have to finish this sooner than later. All right, finishing up the the uh, Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. So Catholic here is small c. Catholic is an old word that means united. It's an old English word that means united. So what this originally meant was, I believe in one united church, like all Christians everywhere are part of the church. Because from the beginning... You know, there's churches that meet in different places, and the churches that meet in different places don't necessarily all get along because they're filled with humans. But the belief is, I believe in one Catholic church, that even if we don't get along or don't see things quite similar, quite the same way, we're all part of the same family. And the Catholic church came, well, the, the Roman church came along um, after this creed was written and said, well, we're going to call our understanding of church, the Catholic Church, because we see ourselves as representing and leading the entire church. Not everybody was on board with that. Um, there was a very long 
like lasted like a millennia, a debate about whether the Bishop of Rome should be the leader of of the whole church. Um, the Eastern Church was not thrilled with that. They had their own leadership, and some of the other churches weren't thrilled with that. Um, there were many people in the church that believed that um, the church should be led by a council. And um, there was the conciliar uh, party, and the, the, in French they called them the Ultramontagne, um, Beyond the Mountain Party, because uh, this debate happened somewhat in, in the region of France uh, and leading up to, um, what was that? Leading up, I guess, to the Reformation time. Because at times the church was led by councils, at times it was led more by the Pope. And the Eastern Church split off, eventually became the Orthodox Church. And the Orthodox Church then took the name Orthodox and said, well, we're Orthodox, you're not. And the Catholic Church took the word Catholic and said, we represent the whole Church of God, the Catholic Church. We are the Catholic Church, you're, you're not. And uh, now the Catholic Church kind of embraces the Orthodox Church, but for a long time it, it said, basically, you're not Christians. And that was fine because the Orthodox said, you're not Christians either. That's how church splits happen. That happened at uh, around 1050 AD. Anyways, all that to say, um, Catholic small c, I believe that all Christians, all these various churches, are all part of the family of God. I believe that Catholics are part of the family of God, Orthodox are part of the family of God, Pentecostals, Mennonites, whatever. We're all part of the family of God. Now, that doesn't mean, I'm going to hasten to say, that doesn't mean that everybody who calls themselves a Christian is a Christian. It just means that these churches all serve the same God. You know, they, they would all recite the Apostles' Creed and say that they believe this. They believe in the Trinity. They believe in Jesus. They believe that Jesus paid for their sins. They see a lot of things very differently than I would, some people do. Um, but as long as you believe the essentials, uh, that's what is needed for uh, a relationship with God. And I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, so the rest of that's pretty self-explanatory. All right, so I believe in a previous podcast I talked about I don't I believe in heaven and hell. <clears throat> I believe there's a good place and a bad place, and I believe that C.S. Lewis said at the beginning of his book, he's got a book. Um, it's a fascinating read. Uh, I'd really recommend it for you. Called the Great Divorce, and some people misread the Great Divorce as kind of like a different version of heaven and hell, where hell is like this shadowy place where. You make your own house out of your imagination and live there. And it's kind of a boring place, but it's not really torture. Um, but what C.S. Lewis was pointing at was the ways that people in this life uh, create their own realities apart from God. And at the beginning of that book, or maybe it was at the beginning of um, his book, The Problem of Pain, because I read them both at the same time recently. He talked about, if there's anything that I would like to take out from the Christian religion, it would be the doctrine of hell. Because who wants to believe that people... Who wants to believe this? That people are going to die, and they're going to go to a terrible place and be tortured eternally, like forever, and it will never stop. 
Um, and I believe this, and it's, it's, it's caused me more trouble. Like, I honestly feel like I have post-traumatic stress from believing in hell. Um, and I don't speak that lightly, and I know what post-traumatic stress is, and I feel, I feel traumatized by this. And people that can speak of it lightly, I don't understand how. It's a terrible idea. It's a terrible doctrine. And yet Jesus spoke about hell more than anybody else. And it makes sense. Because you see people in life, and the more that you live life and observe people, you realize people are moving in a direction, on a trajectory. And some people are moving up, and some people are moving down. And and if if given an eternal amount of time, the people that are moving up, they're going to keep improving, even if the improvements right now are minuscule. They're just trying and not making any progress. It might be really frustrating, but they keep trying. At some point, if the trajectory is upwards, they're going to improve. And the grace of God is going to come in there and start helping them, and they're going to find mercy, and they're going to it's going to improve, whereas the people that are aiming down and that just don't care and that take advantage of others and that are cruel and learn and people get good at being cruel. It's like an art form that is perfected and they get better and better and better at it. And they learn to love it more and more and they drink in They drink in the tears of their victims like like honey, and it gives them pleasure and delight. This is reality. There's people like this. There's a lot of verses in the Bible like that. And as you live life, you experience people that are pure evil. And it just makes sense that people that are going down are going to keep going down. It doesn't make any sense to say, well, all of a sudden they're going to change and they're going to become good people. How? If people are have free will, if being a person means you have your own experience of reality and your own free will to decide what to do with that reality, how could that person suddenly decide to be good? It doesn't make sense to me. That It seems like that would erase part of what it means for them to be a person. So unfortunately and tragically, I do believe in heaven and hell. And I do believe that Jesus is the only way to get out of hell because... Jesus is God, and God is the only one that can rescue us from from the hell that we are headed towards. And I believe that this is the most important message in all the world to tell people about. I don't believe that all religions teach the same thing. I can't, went over that in the first podcast of this. They just don't. Uh, they, they simply don't teach the same thing. I don't believe that all religions are leading to the good place. Most religions teach some form of moralism, Try harder, do do better, do the good things, and you'll get there. And Christianity is pretty adamant that you can't do enough good things to get there. You need grace. You need the gift of God. You need forgiveness. And as God forgives your sins, um, you become adopted into his family. You receive the Holy Spirit. Then you can start a new life over. And then you begin living a holy life. And that's not as payment, it's not as uh, earning anything, but it's, um, it's a new life that you live with God. And if you want to know more about living that new life, then go ahead and private message me. I'm hoping to do a podcast soon on 
the gospel, how to become a Christian. I did one in French, which is why I keep feeling like I've already done this, but um, I want to do one in English soon. I don't believe that all Christians are good people. There are emotionally dysfunctional, evil, even criminal, criminal people in the churches. This is because we literally let anybody in. That's kind of how our religion works. Many hurt people come to the church to try and get better, but a few come to find soft targets for their crimes or a place where they can manipulate others without anyone quote-unquote gossiping about them. This is simply a reality. The churches are not always safe places, and I no, no longer trust people simply because they say that they are Christian. I've experienced some of the dark side, and... Just because somebody says they're a Christian, that doesn't mean that they're trying to better their lives. It doesn't mean that they are good people. Even if they were raised in the church, even if they're raised by the most wonderful people, people make their own decisions. And some truly evil people have come out of churches and good homes. I believe that many quote-unquote Christians are going to the bad place. Anyone can say that they are a Christian. Literally anyone there is not like a secret handshake you need to learn to join our religion. There's no book. Nobody is keeping track of who is in and who is out. Some religions do that. Ours does not. But God is keeping score. And his grace is for people who really want to change and are doing their best with his help to really walk the narrow path. There are many hypocrites who call themselves one thing but live another way. These people will one day hear Jesus say, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Matthew seven twenty-two to 24 I believe that many Christian subcultures are unscriptural and pharisaical. What I mean by subcultures is you'll have Christian teachers that will rise up. And also you'll have, well, subcultures arise for a number of reasons. People in a certain place... Um, develop a certain way of thinking and speaking and having music and culture and art all together. And there are some, and then sometimes a, a teacher will come along, a Christian teacher, nothing wrong with somebody having their own way of teaching the Bible, their own perspective on it, a way of speaking to a certain subculture. And this will create kind of one type of Christian, one type of, this is one variation um, and so there will be people that especially follow a certain teacher or especially, you know, like there's Southern Baptists, for example. You know what that is. Um, it, you know, people in the south of the United States that tend to be more Baptist, they believe in the rapture, tend to have a lot of guns, tend to like to barbecue. They tend to like singing Southern gospel music, you know, like that. There's a subculture, right? So I believe that... Some Christian subcultures are emotionally, are unscriptural and pharisaical. I think that within some of these subcultures, I'm not, I'm not pointing at the Southern Baptists, um, but there are some, um, maybe I won't point them out in this podcast, but in the future I think I will. There are some subcultures that I've bumped into that really have issues to the point where I would say that they're basically pharisaical and if we could just kind of remove everything about that subculture like the whole thing has kind of gone bad about how they present the gospel and this can happen with individual churches it can happen with whole 
teachings. You know, one teacher can start down the path of moralism and being a Pharisee and being focused on externals and, and performance. And it just leads a whole bunch of people astray into this direction. It's not that they're bad Christians anymore. Uh, it's not that they're not Christians anymore, but they're missing out on the joy that they could have. And they're making... <laughs> They're ta- they're making it no fun anymore, and um, and hurting a lot of people, and this really happens, and this is something that um, really boils my blood, and and I wish I, I and I will talk more about it in the future. Um, how Christianity can go wrong, and we can turn towards religion and legalism. Um, I believe that many Christian subcultures are emotionally unhealthy. I think. In my journey recently, in my, jo- in my journal, I wrote, is Christianity emotionally healthy? And I pondered that and I looked at it from various directions and I realized, no, the Christianity I was raised with is not emotionally healthy. And that was kind of a revelation for me because in my recent journey this past year, well, past two years, really, I've been learning what it means to be healthy, what it means to be an integrated human being who is a body and a soul and a mind and they're all working in harmony and all loving one another and all working together and all submitted to the lordship of christ and all living in the beauty of what it is to be a human and i realized i had to unlearn a lot of what i learned in in my christian churches because what we learn is something like um your body is evil uh, you need to subject it. You need to push it under and only let your mind rule because your mind is good. And the way to get closer to God is to use your mind, memorize more verses, understand more doctrines, learn to debate and debate better than somebody else. Um, those things perhaps weren't said exactly like that. But it's the message that came across. Your body is evil. You know, don't focus on your body. Don't try and be beautiful. Don't try and lose weight and and be more fit. That's a waste of time. Just try and be smarter. That's the way to be holy. Um, I disagree with that now. That's not healthy. That's not a healthy way to live. And so um, likely I'll talk more about that in the future. I believe in global warming. And I'm pretty sure it's man-made. I think that all the bad things that have happened, <laughs> I, it'll be interesting to see what happens with this pandemic. We're already seeing a huge global reset as far as clear skies and greener, <laughs> greener, green, blue or blue. Um, it'd be interesting to see what happens with the climate with this because... You know, people that try and say, oh, well, humans are doing hardly any CO2. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. We're doing a huge amount. And if... I'm going to add something here. I believe that Christian evangelicalism has an anti-intellectualist bent. An anti-intellectualist bent. What do I mean by that? Anti-intellectual. We are against science, often. 
we don't trust science. And, I mean, not everybody, some people do, but the message that often comes across the pulpit and often comes across in Christian books and often comes across, you know, people that that are kind of thought leaders in Christianity is we don't trust science. Why? Like, if a bunch of scientists get together in a room and say, okay, here's what we've figured out and and here's the scientific consensus, the world is warming up. I look at that and I say, oh, okay, the world is warming up. And people would say, oh, you're so trusting, you're so gullible. Well, these are a bunch of scientists and this is what they do and they all agree, so why wouldn't I believe them? Oh, well, because of this and that and look at this this blog post or something. It's our default. The default of many people seems to be to, to distrust science and I don't get that. Um, did I already do this? Yeah, I just did a podcast on, um, on fact and fiction in whatever I called it in pandemics, um, the big business, the big business of misinformation. So go back and listen to that if you'd like. But, you know, as somebody, I'm not like a scholar or anything, but I have published uh, and I have a master's in theology and I'm working on a doctorate in theology. And like, it's, it's not as though you go up to somebody and hand somebody a big check and do a secret handshake and they give you a doctorate. Like it's a lot of work. And so if somebody says I have a doctorate in environmental studies, I'm like, wow, like you, you gave 10 years of your life to studying the climate that that means something. And so for Joe Blow Pastor to say, oh, I don't believe that. Well, really? Like this guy spent 10 years of his life studying it. And now you're going to tell me, oh, well, based on my research, what do you mean your research? You mean you went online and you clicked on a bunch of websites and you spent like an afternoon studying this. And now you think you're more of an expert than this guy with a doctorate in climate studies. Really? And now you're going to get up the next minute and preach to me about humility. Mm -hmm. Like we have this, and then like the way that science moves forward, academic consensus, is people write journal articles and then other people refute journal articles. And it goes back and forth. You know, people put forward their ideas in in these journal articles. And... It has to go through an editor first who is an expert in the field and then it has to be peer-reviewed and then people have to... And then once the idea is out there, then everybody debates it and discusses it. And people try to find the most creative, outlandish, original ideas that nobody's thought of because they want to get recognized. They want to get known. And so when people say, well, nobody's thought of this, well, people have thought of just about everything because everybody... Before you can get a doctorate, what you have to do is come up with an idea that nobody in the world has thought of. That is really hard to do. And then you have to focus it down, you need to write it, and you need to create a thesis and then publish it. And then they'll give you a doctorate. Uh, And then from there, if you want to continue being an academic, you need to keep doing journal articles, maybe one a year, maybe one every two years. Some people do like five a year. And they have to all be original ideas. And every time you write one of these things, it has to go through an editing process and then it goes out into the world and then other academics read it, other specialists in the field read it, and then they use their research 
and their knowledge, and they try their best to pick it apart and to destroy your idea. And either the idea stands or it falls, or it maybe gets modified. And this is how scientific consensus works. It's not as though there's some group up there that's controlling knowledge. It just doesn't work that way. And, um, and I trust it. I, I, do, I do know that there can be weaknesses to it. There can be blind spots. Um, a lot of good ideas get passed by because it would take too much time to prove. There isn't a way to prove it. Uh, maybe there isn't funding for some ideas because some ideas take a lot of money to prove. And so if a company is going to pay for this, if an industry will pay for it. Um, so I do understand that there's some ideas that just there's no money in improving it in some fields. But I don't, I don't think it's a good idea. What I'm seeing is that a lot of Christians have the default position of not believing science. And I, I tend to think that that comes from, from six-day creationism that many of us were taught. Evolution is wrong. The rest of the world believes in evolution. Therefore, the rest of the world is, is wrong. Uh, and we shouldn't listen to science. And that's led to a lot of not listening to science on other things. And I, I just think that um, we should listen to science unless there's a really good reason not to. And I disagree with anti-intellectualism as a default position for for life and um, for that largely for that reason I believe in global warming because it seems to be what the experts are saying and the main argument against it is seem to just be based in anecdotal experience well it seems to me that the world isn't that much warmer yeah but do you have hundreds of probes all around the world measuring the ocean to precise temperatures and, and comparing those temperatures to previously Oh, yes, but, you know, when I was reading in this book from 100 years ago, it said that the earth was warmer and it goes through cycles. Really, so have, but there's people that look at, that take core samples from glaciers and are able to tell the temperature and the atmospheric conditions from the last thousand of years, and they spend their whole life doing this. And you think that your knowledge is really better than theirs. Anyways, we're moving on from that. I believe in global warming. I believe that the Bible is God's ideas written through human authors. Well, that's a big topic I just dropped at the end here. Um, this means there are human components that can be studied like any other book, but the ideas behind them come as revelation from God. In this way, the Bible is both a book like any other book and a book unlike any other book. If you go back and listen to my podcast on the Chicago Statement, you'll under you can uh, hear what I believe about the Bible and inerrancy. I believe in divorce in some cases. Some people are just evil. Divorce even for Christians. Some people are just evil, including Christians, people who call themselves Christians. And when they do not try to change their lives for the better, the best one can do is try and get distance from them. And efficient, There's lots of verses in the Bible, by the way, about um, do not be yoked together with unbelievers and uh, do not eat with, un with evil people. Do not spend time with a angry man with a wrathful man there's evil people that you just need to get away from and that's just it um so if somebody's not going to change sometimes the best you can do is get distance from them 
An official divorce provides legal protections and determines custody rights, which is important. God allowed divorce because of the hardness of our hearts. And as far as I can see, that is still a problem. So it's a tragic solution. It's the last option. It's not to be entered into lightly. But there is a time and a place for divorce. I don't know what I believe about remarriage anymore. That's as honestly as I can say it. I don't know. I don't know. I used to be pretty firm on remarriage being a sin because that's what Jesus said, it seems. However, when divorce happens young in life, it seems exceedingly harsh to demand a person live their whole life in solitude. Also, this seems to place a huge amount of temptation on a person. Was Jesus really thinking of lifelong celibacy when he forbade men to stop the practice of divorcing and remarrying over and over? I don't know. I feel like he was more telling men who had all the power in that society to stick it out with their wives and not find legal loopholes to switch them out for younger women. I don't know what I believe on that issue, but I have no... Okay, so um, I talked earlier about... Uh, Jesus said, give to the one that demands of you and don't turn back from him. Uh, that was in the first podcast. And I wasn't a- I'm not able to live that out literally. But I live the concept of that. I am a generous person. I do give to charity. I do give when people ask me. Um, not all the time, not always in the ways that they, they want me to, but I do. My default position is to give. And um, the best, the closest I can come to understanding how to be obedient to Jesus on that point is to understand that Jesus sometimes spoke in what's referred to as rabbinical hyperbole. And this was a teaching method common among rabbis of Jesus' time, which was hyperbole is overstating your case. So it's a little bit like um, I'm over the moon for you. Well, you're not really over the moon. But we understand, like, over the moon. Like, you're so excited about the person that you feel like you're over the moon. You know, when Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, then cut it off and throw it away from you. He didn't really mean for you to cut off your hand. He meant for because that would be mutilating your body. Your body's made in God's image. Don't do that. But be that passionate about getting the sin out of your life. And we... Like, it's, a, it's an effective way to communicate because it sticks with you. You know, if your right eye causes you to sin, then gouge it out and throw it away because it's better to enter heaven with one eye than hell with, with both eyes. It's, it's a powerful way of communicating. But Christians through the ages, like there have been some Christians who have taken him literally. Origen, for example, um, had sexual temptations and so he castrated himself. And later on, he thought, he said that was the wrong thing to do. That wasn't what Jesus meant. And I think a lot of Christians would agree that's not literally what God means. He means metaphorically, if if something in your life is causing you to sin, if your internet is causing you to sin, then unplug your internet until you get your life in order. Do whatever it takes. And so it seems as though when Jesus was speaking, he was using this way of speaking known as rabbinic hyperbole to speak in extremes, but it was to get a point across. And and so we don't necessarily need to listen to him literally. If we listen to him literally, it'll lead to strange places. 
but we take the concept that he's trying to say and we apply that faithfully. So when somebody asks you for something, your default ought not to be no. Your default ought to be yes. And you should be willing to give anything right up to the clothes off your back to this person if you believe it's going to make them better. You know, if you think that the gift is going to hurt them, then you might have reason to say no. Um, so when it comes to divorce and remarriage, it seems as though Jesus was facing a situation where the men had all the power in society. Men tended to marry younger women. And when the women got to a certain age, or if they had issues of some sort, they would just divorce them, send them their papers, and wash their hands and marry somebody younger and, and move on with a second woman. And this was very displeasing to God. Um, in, I think it's Malachi, um, God says, I hate divorce, and you have been unfaithful to the wife of your youth. And when Jesus came on the scene, he said, don't you realize that by divorcing this woman, you're causing her to, to commit adultery and you are committing adultery against her. You're just, you're finding a legal loophole to, um, to get out of this marriage that was meant to be lifelong and you should stop doing this. And so it seems as though what Jesus was saying is marriage is meant to be for life. It is meant to be for life. But what do we do in cases where there's a genuinely evil person or the marriage just simply is not working? Uh, as I've already said, there is a time for divorce. Um, when there's really bad situations happening, um, there's a time for divorce. But then what do you do when you have a 23-year-old girl or a 23-year-old guy and they're divorced and they still have their whole life ahead of them? They still have lots of sexual energy they still want to have kids they still want a soulmate they, they want a partner what do you what are you going to say to that person and the thing that stands out to me is that's a lot of sexual temptation for the next you know potentially 40 years i mean more than that but especially 40 years of sexual temptation it seems to me that um, perhaps you know, there's times in life when there's not a good option, there's a, a bad option and a worse option. And Paul does say if if you have sexual temptations, it's better to marry than to burn in passion. And so I don't know what I believe about this because Jesus is pretty clear in what he said. Um, I certainly... I'm just going to leave it at that. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, what I believe about it. But I have no judgment for those who have made the best decision possible in the complex situations that life has brought them. Life is messy, and I've grown too old to throw the first stone. I don't know. I'm a, Thom I'm a Thomist in my philosophy. That's a big topic that I'll probably get into eventually which means I do not subscribe to modern and certainly not to postmodern philosophy. I believe that René Descartes was wrong full stop. Nothing about Descartes was right. I believe that the world is really there and that it really communicates real ideas, reality to our minds. The Matrix was a fun movie, but a terrible way to do philosophy. So 
the whole way that I see the world is different than the way most people, Christians and non-Christians alike, see the world today based on Thomistic philosophy um, that I'll explain sometime later. I believe in psychology as a wonderful field of science which has unlocked <clears throat> huge amounts of information about how our brains work and how they interact with our bodies. I've been learning a lot about what it means to be healthy and how to heal and put myself back together again as a holistic human being. I would love to learn more and I'm currently studying this in my spare time. I look forward to sharing more insights on emotional health in the near future. Uh, so there's, okay, and then the next point. I, I disagree that the Bible alone can heal emotional problems. So there's some people, I think it's called euthetic counseling that says the only type of counseling is from the Bible and any type of psychology is wrong and I disagree with that because I've benefited tremendously from psychology and from a lot of different types of counseling and I have a recent podcast on the types of counseling I've used and, and the benefit that I've received from them. Now many people struggle with moral guilt, shame, bitterness and similar problems. These are very big issues which Christianity can address. And those are issues that it seems that psychology is weaker on. Uh, psychology, well, it depends on the type of psychology, but it seems as though often there isn't a way of really dealing with your guilt. And the guilt that we feel can be um, at the center of a lot of our problems. And so the wonderful thing about the gospel and the message of Christianity is that you can find forgiveness and freedom for the, that's, that sin that that problem right at the center of who you are but um there's more to a person than that um so there are very, yeah so many people struggle with moral guilt shame bitterness and similar problems these are very big problems which christianity can address however there are other issues such as post-traumatic stress disorder anxiety depression and burnout which the bible may mention but has no special insights into how to address. I know that's shocking to some people. What, there's, some, there's a problem that the Bible doesn't fix? Yeah. There's lots of problems that the Bible doesn't fix. The Bible doesn't tell us about gravity. The Bible doesn't tell us about penicillin. And the Bible doesn't tell us how to recover from post-traumatic stress disorder. Fortunately, <clears throat> um, there's people that have figured out really great methods for identifying what is going on with post-traumatic stress disorder and then for fixing it or for providing some amount of healing. Um, but you need to have the humility to go to, to somebody other than a Christian or, or maybe they're a Christian, but a certain speciality. For these things, we can learn a lot from modern psychology. As has been mentioned, many Christian subcultures can be very unhealthy as well, meaning that some people will need to completely disengage from their religious past to find emotional health. Yeah, I mean, there's some people that were raised, the way that they were raised is part of why they're emotionally unhealthy now. And um, that will add a significant level of complexity to their journey as they try and find health. Um, all right. Not sure I want to elaborate on anything else. Uh, this was supposed to be a 20-minute podcast, and how we have three 40-minute <laughs> podcasts. So anyways, um, 
these are some highlights of things that I believe, um, kind of the, the outline sketch of my basic belief system at this time. Um, I was surprised as I went through this how often I could say you can go back and listen to a previous podcast because I've looked at this in depth. That's kind of heartening to myself. I, I had kind of forgotten how many of these topics I've already gone into in depth. Um, and it reminds me that although I haven't been putting a lot of energy into this recently, I am in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview, and I have been, and this is something that I come back to and stay faithful with over the years. And it continues to take shape, and uh, it continues to get more and more clear for myself, and I hope that as you listen to this, it will become helpful to you in some way as well. So this is Josiah Meyer for the No Longer Be Children podcast. I hope that you have a great day and that these ideas help you think better about God. Bye.